Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The coronavirus situation in the UK worsened this week, leading Boris Johnson to announce new nationwide restrictions on working and socialising while insisting the UK still loved its freedom. If you look at the history of this country over the last 300 years, uh, virtually every advance in, from free speech to democracy uh, to, uh, have been, has, come from this, has come from this country. And it is very difficult to ask the British population uh, uniformly to obey to obey uh, guidelines in the way that it is necessary. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. The news has been dominated by COVID-19 this week, and so will the podcast. I'll be diving into the latest restrictions the Prime Minister introduced, as well as the mini-budget announced by Chancellor Rishi Sunak to protect jobs throughout the winter. Joining me is political editor George Parker and economics editor Chris Giles. And later, we'll be casting an eye over Keir Starmer's first conference speech as Labour Party leader. His virtual keynote was well received and the party's levelled up with the Tories in the polls. But are activists happy with where he's taking the party? Chief political correspondent Jim Picard is joined by special guest Ellie May O'Hagan, an opinion writer, to offer their insights. George and Chris, welcome back. Hi. Hi, Seb. Well, Boris Johnson told us all to start working from home again and said that we couldn't stay in restaurants beyond 10pm. And as really the biggest party goers of the Financial Times, I'm very keen to know, has this really limited your social life this week, George? Well, I must admit, I haven't obeyed the edict to work from home if possible. I think I'm a key worker. So it's key that I'm in the House of Commons keeping FT readers and listeners up to speed with what's going on. So I'm still cycling into the House of Commons every day. As far as restaurants closing at 10 o'clock and pubs, I tell you, it's, it's slightly damning. My phone has been filling up over the last few days with these QR codes to prove how many pubs I've been into, which is slightly daunting, actually. But no, it hasn't really dampened my social life yet, but it probably will. Well, I was at a dinner on Wednesday night with a politician and we were the last ones in the restaurant and it went on very, very late in the evening and I eventually got the realisation that the person I was dining with was trying to get the last two round. We were eventually kicked out of the restaurant well past 11pm. And Chris, I know you're working at home because just to complete that North London media image, we bumped into each other outside the butcher's shop quite recently. We did, Seb, and I was amazed that you were in that butcher shop since you almost need to take out a new mortgage when you go there, so you must be being paid a lot more than me. Well, while these new measures may have not affected our personal lives, it has been a busy one in our professional lives, so let's move on to the main discussion. Coronavirus is ripping through the UK again. The number of positive tests for COVID-19 has reached over 6,000 a day. Boris Johnson was forced to introduce a 10pm curfew and suggest workers stay at home. George Parker and political journalists accepted, of course. Measures in Scotland went even further, banning different households from mixing. 
For Rishi Sunak, this abrupt change in government policy meant another creative scheme to limit unemployment and keep the economy going as much as possible. His budget due later this year was scrapped and in its place, new measures to protect jobs. Mr Speaker, I know people are anxious and afraid and exhausted at the prospect of further restrictions on our economic and social freedoms. I share those feelings, but there are reasons to be cautiously optimistic. We are in a fundamentally different position than we were in March. George, begin by just giving us an overview of the coronavirus situation in the UK. As I said before, the number of positive tests is increasing rapidly. That's also because we're testing more, but there is a sense from Downing Street they are deeply worried at the situation. Yes, they are worried. And uh, we saw a jump by a quarter on one day this week, up to over 6,000 recorded cases. Hospitalizations are rising. And just anecdotally, everyone in their daily lives now are starting to hear about friends who've got the virus, which wasn't happening a few weeks ago. So it's certainly a cause of huge concern. The scientific and medical advisors to the government are extremely pessimistic, I'm told, about the prospects for the next six months or so. That has obviously fed through into policymaking. And we saw at the start of the week, at the end of last week, a big debate inside government about how far the restrictions should go, in England at least. Boris Johnson caught really between two camps, the scientists and medical people who wanted to take very tough action to start to close the economy down. And people like Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, who you heard there, basically pushing back and saying that we've got to tread very carefully and think about the wider economic implications of a big new lockdown. Chris, as we've all been writing about this week, the Prime Minister is walking this tightrope. Because on the one hand, you've got those scientific and medical advisors telling him that coronavirus is spreading rapidly and you need to act now. Then on the other side, you've got business community, the Chancellor saying, well, hang on a minute, we've had one very deep recession to the economy. We can't risk doing this thing again. And when Boris Johnson did that big address to the nation, you could see that he opted for some looser measures than Scotland, but still further than some Conservative MPs wanted him to go. Yeah, this is very, very difficult. I mean, you could easily overplay the trade-off between economics and health, because if the health situation gets very bad, the economy is going to do very badly. Because I think one thing we saw before the lockdown in March was that people locked down voluntarily when people got very scared in the week before the government's lockdown officially came into play. But there is a hope in government still that they can manage this, that they can keep infections down and have sufficient regulations in place so that people don't get terrified. And while I've certainly heard senior politicians say it's going to be a very weak fourth quarter, the hope is that we don't have to go to a whole lockdown where whole sectors get entirely shut. No one is confident that that will happen yet. It's terribly uncertain. Because when we had the first lockdown, George, and most Conservative MPs and ministers went along with it because there really was no alternative. We didn't have the testing capacity. The NHS wasn't ready. There was very little progress on the vaccine. And as we know, the whole UK state was overwhelmed by COVID-19. We're in a very different place now. And the reaction from Tory MPs and some ministers we've spoken to this week is actually to say... I'm not so sure about this. Maybe we should be taking a different approach. And of course, everybody loves to talk about Sweden. Well, that's right. I mean, the the politics of it have become a lot more complicated for Boris Johnson, as you say. And that problem started back in the early summer when lots of Tory MPs were getting frustrated with the slow pace at which Boris Johnson was lifting the lockdown. You know, remember that row about moving from two metres to one metre as a safe distance. And that's really escalated 
over the last few weeks, there's lots of Conservative MPs rail against two things. One is the sort of traditional libertarian wing of the Conservative Party, which has a ready mouthpiece in many parts of the press who don't like the idea of individual liberties being constricted. And then you've got people who are just concerned about the impact on the economy and businesses in their own constituencies who are worried as well. So they are putting pressure on Boris Johnson to go more slowly. And they find themselves with a sort of natural ally in the Treasury in the shape of Rishi Sunak, who was striking some quite sort of libertarian-type notes in his Winter Economic Plan statement this week, talking about how he mustn't live in fear. I think that chimes quite strongly with certainly parts of the right-wing press in the country, but also with many Tory MPs. And he's certainly seen as the cheerleader-in-chief against tougher restrictions. And just before we come to that economic plan, George, what do you think the likelihood is of further restrictions in England? Because the sense I've had from the big beasts in the Tory party is they've accepted this and most of the grumbling has stayed on WhatsApp groups and only occasional speeches in the Commons. But if Boris Johnson was to introduce restrictions in England for households mixing, as we've seen in Scotland, for example, people might go over the top and get very annoyed indeed. Well, as Chris was saying, I don't think anyone can really predict that we're not going to be back in a week or two's time with more restrictions. You only have to think back a couple of weeks now when the government introduced the rule of six. That was seen as quite a big move. And they were going to give themselves time to assess the impact. And several weeks would elapse while they reviewed the situation. In fact, within eight days, they were coming back with new restrictions. So I don't think it would be altogether surprising to see Boris Johnson moving in the next week or two to tighten the restrictions. We know that in Scotland, and I think in Northern Ireland as well, they've already moved to stop households mixing. That seems to me to be the most obvious next step in England. And then, of course, we know there was a big dispute inside government about whether the hospitality sector should be closed altogether rather than just being shut down at 10pm. That's an argument which is going to bubble along for the next few weeks as well. So I think it's entirely likely more restrictions are coming. And when that happens, there's going to be a big bust up with the Tory party. Now, Chris, let's move on to the economic side of this, because Rishi Sunak was due to give a budget in November. And I think you were the first person to report that that might not happen. That's been scrapped. And instead, we have this winter economic plan. Tell us what's in it and what you made of it. Well, the big news, I think, in the winter economic plan was that there are some new help for furlough, which was supposed to end at the end of October. But it's massively, massively less generous than the existing plan. So the Treasury still tried to stick to its view that it wants to slowly move out of subsidising jobs, which it feels now are not viable. So if you think about what sort of jobs do they mean when they say not viable, maybe a bouncer at a nightclub where nightclubs are just not allowed to open. They feel there's no point in keeping that sort of person permanently on furlough and permanently thinking that they've got a job to go back to and not looking for other work, essentially the harder Treasury officials you speak to will say that they should be on Social Security, they should be forced to look for other work. And so what we saw in the Winter Economic Plan was a move from subsidising jobs where people were not working at all to only subsidising jobs where people work at least a third of their normal hours and then the level of subsidy being much lower so that employers are faced with this really rather stark choice. Do I really want to keep this employee on? And if so, I'm going to have to pay quite a lot to do that. Or is it actually time to cut the ties and make them redundant and put them onto the normal state programs? So that is the big message from the Treasury. We didn't really get that from Rishi Sunak himself. It was wrapped up in 
we're providing lots of extra support. But when you actually looked at the details, that was the underlying structure of what was going on. George, it did seem as if they were moving away from furlough, which obviously, as we know, cost £39 billion and was seen as a very generous scheme, but it did stave off the risk of mass unemployment. And it still feels as if that threat is coming down the tracks and that is going to have huge political consequences for the government when you see millions of people losing their jobs because of coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, that's the big political pressure that's facing Rishi Sunak over the next few weeks. And we're going to get a crystallisation of the unemployment crisis on October the 31st when the furlough scheme ends. And at that point, and probably before that, you're going to see MPs calling for more government help for affected sectors, more cash going into the benefit system as well. And Rishi Sunak is well aware that that pressure is coming towards him. Again, as with the coronavirus statement by Boris Johnson, where I wouldn't be surprised to see him back at the dispatch box in the next two or three weeks with tougher restrictions. Equally, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see Rishi Sunak making another appearance at the dispatch box, having to do more in the coming weeks, because the political pressure isn't just coming from the Labour Party, but also from many Conservative MPs as well. I've got to say, George, it feels eerily similar to the budget on the 11th of March, which felt at the time like a big intervention to tide us over for coronavirus. And then the chance was back at the dispatch box by the 19th of March with the furlough scheme. So I think to know what's going to happen with the measures, look at the numbers of peak caseloads. If that keeps going up, he'll be back at the dispatch box. Well, not everybody was a fan of the news and they felt that Mr Sunak should already be going further and faster. Annalise Dodds, who's Labour's shadow chancellor, called for more action to be taken. Now, this government has lagged behind on test trace and isolate. It's lagged behind on wage support. It's lagged behind on support for those having to self-isolate. It's lagging behind on green investment. And for these and for other reasons, it looks like our recovery will be lagging behind that of many other countries. So finally, when will the Chancellor provide the back-to-work budget this country needs? Thank you. So George, listening to that, you know, Labour is calling for a back-to-work budget and obviously wants to get people back into their jobs as quickly as possible. But it feels if you take this and you take the measures, the next six months are going to be pretty tough for the UK and nobody in government is really talking about anything resembling normal life till March at the earliest. Well, Labour's economic plan is is a little bit hard to discern, to be honest. Annalise Dodds gave a speech to her virtual party conference this week uh, with a three-point plan. But if you scratch beneath the surface, it's quite hard to get any firm commitments from the Labour Party at the moment, which I think it's probably taken the right decision, which all they need to do is appear to be the, the non-Boris Johnson party at the moment and look reasonably competent rather than mapping out detailed proposals. But yes, the political pressure is going to mount. One thing I would just observe about the Winter Economic Plan and Rishi Sunak's statement with this week was it was another masterclass, frankly, on how to do politics, because as Chris pointed out, the amount of money being shelled out by the Treasury over the next six months is not huge in the context of the government support programme so far, which cost over £200 billion. This is about £10 billion over six months. And yet, it still managed to be more generous than the employers' organisation, the CBI, had asked for. And Rishi Sunak still managed to appear outside 11 Downing Street, flanked by the heads of the TUC and the CBI to give their endorsement of what he was proposing. So he managed the optics of it extremely well. But the sheer volume of unemployment claims The fact, as Chris said, that the virus is probably going to spike quite sharply in the next few weeks, I think it makes the pressure on him to do more almost unbearable. 
Indeed. And finally, Chris, how do you think Rishi Sunak has done here? Because you look at the papers on Friday and they're full of glowing praise for his economic intervention here, whereas Boris Johnson is often criticised by the right-wing papers these days as well. And I think when you saw him at the dispatch box, he sort of exudes competence, but also compassion that you wouldn't really felt with Philip Hammond or George Osborne there. So he seems to have discovered quite a potent mix of reassuring people and doing the right things for the economy, even if there are still some very tough times ahead that could knock his reputation. I think he's been very, very wise with the tone and he does look like the big grown-up in the cabinet I think it's hard to say that Mr. Sunak's got things terribly wrong so far, but really the hard yards are ahead. You know, the economy is still probably around 5% below its peak. And now when we're taking away support, even though it's much more gradual than it could have been, that is going to, again, weigh on the economy, weigh on unemployment. And the moment unemployment starts rising really quite fast will be a much more difficult phase for the government. And then, of course, we've got the phase of what on earth do we do about the public finances once we're through the big crisis of the virus, because they are going to be in a shocking state over the next four or five years, almost certainly persistently damaged. And that means tax rises or further austerity, none of which is pleasant for a government. George and Chris, thank you. Now, let's move on to Keir Starmer and his debut conference speech as Labour leader. It was a virtual keynote with the opposition leader literally standing in front of a red wall in a red wall seat. To make the point, he is trying to reconnect the party to its traditional heartlands, many of which voted Tory for the first time in last year's election. Never again will Labour take you or the things you care about for granted. And I ask you, take another look at Labour. We're under new leadership. We love this country as you do. This is the country I grew up in. And this is the country I will grow old in. And I want it to be the country I know it can be. So Jim Picard, welcome back. And we're also delighted to be joined by Ellie Mayo Hagen, who's an opinion writer who's very well plugged in to Labour Party circles. Thank you both. Jim, this was a big moment for Keir Starmer and it could have been a bit of a flop because essentially you could have said it was just him doing a Zoom speech, but it was very well choreographed and the message couldn't have been clear. It was on the podium, a new leadership. There was only one way to look at this in my view, which was Sir Keir trying to distance himself from Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, I think uh, any sort of supporters of Jeremy Corbyn listening to that would probably be quite disappointed because he didn't mention Jeremy Corbyn once in the entire speech. He mentioned Tony Blair twice. And a lot of the kind of themes you would expect if Jeremy Corbyn was still leader, you'd have expected to hear something about Black Lives Matter, a lot more emphasis on the Green New Deal, a lot more emphasis on taxing the rich, that kind of thing. And Keir Starmer didn't talk about any of that. It was very broad brush. There was a union jack appeared at one point to emphasise his patriotism. He talked about the importance of family. He talked about the importance of security, both on the kind of national level and on a sort of individual level. It was very centrist fair. And he sounded quite serious. And I think the other thing to notice that he went for the Tories in a more vicious way than I think some people would have expected. He gunned Boris Johnson on Boris Johnson's personality defects. He contrasted the fact that When he was a young man, he was defending people in the courts and going on to be the chief prosecutor, where Boris Johnson was, in his words, 
making up funny stuff in magazines, which is not not entirely uh, untrue, I have to add. But it was a really vicious attack saying the Prime Minister's just not up to the job. And I think probably more aggressive than some people would have expected. So Ellie, what did you make of Turkey's speech? Because I think that was what struck me the most, that in the House of Commons so far, since he's become opposition leader, Starmer has very much focused on trying to be constructive opposition is the phrase that I think he's used. But when he had that party political platform, he really did go for the prime minister in a personal way. I think that's probably a result of some of the criticism that he's faced. You know, I mean, both Peter Mandelson and Alistair Campbell have criticised him for not really going for the Tories hard enough. You know, there's quite a lot of revisionism at the moment about Blair's government. And I think one of the ways that that manifests is this idea that you can't win from opposition, you can't create a vision of the country from opposition. And actually, Blair really did that really well and, and was very effective at attacking the Tories. You know, we remember him famously saying about John Major, weak, weak, weak. So it's not surprising that the people who sort of made Blair the politician he was are feeling restless right now. And then also that same criticism is coming from the left, that he's not going hard enough on the Tories, that they are sort of bungling the pandemic with quite catastrophic results. And Jim, obviously, the key thing that Keir Starmer is trying to focus on in this idea of patriotism, as you said, it couldn't have been more obvious the man he talked about how much he loves his country, the Union Jack, and how clear Starmer has been on the armed forces as well, which again was a big dividing line. It was something Jeremy Corbyn struggled with a lot. And he did try and create a narrative about his view of British patriotism, but it's one that didn't really seem to connect with Labour's traditional voters, hence why Keir Starmer was in Doncaster and hence why he was standing in front of a red wall, some may say. Yeah, I mean, I think the three things that the Keir Starmer team would say they've identified as Labour's weaknesses in the December election, one of them was the position on Brexit, we all know about. The other is the perceived lack of patriotism of Jeremy Corbyn. And then the third one would be sort of lack of credibility on the economic front as well. And he obviously wants to neutralise all of those three things. On Brexit, this guy with his enormous brass neck, is now saying he wants to get Brexit done, him saying symbolic things about supporting police and military and everything else. And on the economy, this is the really interesting one where I think they haven't quite worked out what to do. Like what the pandemic has done is it's it's given them a, a totally blank page to basically say, well, look, even though we said the two last manifestos were, were pretty good, Keir Starmer said that when he was running for the leadership, he can now say economic conditions have changed to such a great degree that we're starting fresh. But on the other hand, when you've got a Conservative government racking up the bills incredibly fast, and, and we're going to have the biggest deficit since World War II in the current financial year, that creates quite a strategic dilemma for the Labour Party in terms of, do they still say the answer to our economic problems and the answer to creating a, a green economy in the future is still borrowing a huge amount of money? Or can you just not really say that when the public finances are already under so much pressure? And that I'm not sure whether they've worked out what to do. But I think the other thing to say is that even though Annalisa Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor, is not landing blows particularly well against Rishi Sunak at the moment, I think most people would say, that would probably change in the coming months when we see this much less generous furlough scheme kick in and an awful lot of jobs being lost. I think that's when they might find more of an economic political opportunity. Mm. 
And Ellie, what do you make of this idea that Kistama is really doubling down on trying to show that Labour is a patriotic party in a more traditional sense? It is a very kind of new Labour approach. So all that kind of message you could absolutely imagine coming out of the mouth of Tony Blair. And I'm sure that voters in the Red Wall might look at that and might start to give Labour a second look as Keir Starmer urged. But there'll be some people in the party, in the grassroots, will find it. It doesn't quite sit well with them. Any leader, regardless of which faction of the party they emerged from would be required to distance themselves from Jeremy Corbyn. That, I think, is something that supporters of Jeremy Corbyn should just swallow and accept as a necessity for any leader who is asking for permission to be heard from the public. In terms of the patriotism thing, I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is not, is it right that a Labour leader talks about patriotism? I think what we need to ask ourselves is, where does it take us? Where does it take the Labour leader if he talks about patriotism? And there's already quite a lot of research into what happens when themes like national security and national self-interest, things that are related to patriotism, are talked about publicly. And what we find in communications research, so I'm thinking about this paper that I was a consultant for called Framing the Economy. It's also another paper called Common Cause that was done by a lot of charities like WWF that looks at these issues. And what we find is that talking about these issues tend to open up a lot of other thoughts and feelings in people, they tend to push people in quite a reactionary direction. So for example, Common Cause shows that if you start talking about national security, then people are less likely to be open to outsiders, then less likely to be environmentally friendly. So it's really about what buttons are these issues pushing? And obviously, this is a difficult, vexed issue for Labour. Mm. It's a vexed issue for the left in general, patriotism. And it does bring to the forefront ideas and values that generally aren't helpful to progressive politicians. And that doesn't mean that Labour is on a losing streak because people have other values that they care about as well. And one thing that we determined when we did the Labour Review report, which I was a commissioner for, which was basically the report into what went wrong in 2019, Mm. is that Labour's coalition can be united together by a vision of radical economic transformation And, you know, it's early in the election cycle, so maybe Keir Starmer doesn't want to talk about those things yet. But for me, those are the things that he should be concentrating on in order to bring the coalition together, because he has a massive task ahead of him. It's not just the red wall seats. It's also seats like, you know, Swindon, these kind of seats that aren't red wall that Labour needs to win over, whilst also protecting the gains that it's made in seats like Hackney. One of the key people who is focused on that radical economic agenda is Lisa Nandy, who's one of Keir Starmer's key acolytes in the shadow cabinet. She's talked this week about having to bring the country together and help those left behind communities. Here she is on the BBC. I mean, one section of the speech, for example, talked about um, wanting to bring people together and create opportunities in every part of the United Kingdom. The recognition that large parts of the country haven't benefited from globalisation, that there's been 40 years of decline in many parts of the world, including mine, that is an important moment for this country. Well, Jim, when you listen to that, that's obviously going to be a big focus of Keir Starmer's leadership. But first of all, they do have to start putting some policies forward. Now, my sense is that they're probably going to wait and see what happens after coronavirus. We've still got a long way to go until the next election. But the other thing they've got to think about, of course, is Brexit. And I think it's been very notable over the past two weeks as the Brexit routes have returned to Westminster, that Keir Starmer seems to have adopted Boris Johnson's message and just saying, well, let's just get Brexit done. Yeah, so one thing he did in his speech is he did that awful alliteration thing that politicians do when he he says, 
We want to appeal to people from Doncaster to Deeside and Glasgow to Grimsby. And his idea is that there are kind of universal values that, you know, I guess patriotism being one of them, another one being responsible with public finances, maybe fairness is another one, which hopefully his team think that this will appeal to more than just individual demographics or individual parts of the country. But in Scotland, the problems run a lot deeper than whether you have a charismatic leader or whether you have a good fiscal policy. In Scotland, the Labour Party has gone down from 41 seats to one seat because you've got a majority of people pretty much supporting independence or close to a majority. And then you've got the other half being shared out between about four different parties. So it's very hard to see how Labour Party can bring back Scotland. I think on, on the policy front, he's not produced any new policy this week. And that would be disappointing to a lot of the Labour grassroots. If you look back a year, we had that very dynamic Labour Party conference in Brighton where the members voted for all sorts of incredibly radical stuff, whatever you think of it, like a 2030 carbon target, basically having no immigration controls, you know, pretty radical stuff. And those people are going to look at Keir Starmer sending out these cautious signals and, and wondering what he's up to. And finally, last word to you on this, Ellie. You know, as you said, there, there is this question, I think it's across Labour MPs I've spoken to, which is they think he has done very well so far on focusing on competence, on trying to show that Labour has got itself together in a much better way than it did under Jeremy Corbyn. But there is going to come a point, probably in the not too distant future, where it's going to have to start pulling some policies together. And that does become a challenge because there still lies this sense that Kisama is going to jettison some, if not all, of the Corbyn agenda and move more to a place of where Ed Miliband was. And of course, that's not going to be good news for many Labour activists and for some trade unions. It's not just about Labour activists or trade unions. It should be anyone who wants a Labour government because I'm a fan of Ed Miliband, but Ed Miliband lost the election. Why on earth would Keir Starmer repeat something that was clearly a losing formula? I don't understand why, you know, that would be considered just a problem of the party's left. Surely that's a problem of anybody that wants Labour to stay in power. And look, you know, we're talking about policies. I'm not really like as interested in individual policies as others might be, even though they're obviously important. What's important to me is that Keir Starmer is able to answer the question of what would Britain look like under Keir Starmer? What would it look like in five years? What would it look like in 10 years? You know, Ian Martin of The Telegraph, we disagree on absolutely everything, but I think one thing that he once said that really resonated with me is the public don't always need to agree with politicians. They just need to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And I think that's what Keir Starmer needs to focus on. He needs to explain who he is, why he's in politics, and what would the country look like under his leadership those are the questions that Keir Starmer needs to answer, like relatively sharpish, because, you know, I think it was Deborah Matteson, the sort of long term Labour pollster, who said that the word that voters use to describe Labour at the moment is quiet. And actually, Labour aren't being quiet. So I wonder if what people mean when they say quiet is actually unclear, that actually this person mm. isn't giving a clear and loud sense of who he is and what the Labour Party looks like. That's his Achilles heel right now. And that is something that he needs to fix quite urgently. Jim and Ellie, thank you very much for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh de la Mare. 
The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.